Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. And we're here at 318 Latino Studios for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. And I can't wait to have today's discussion. It's with Dr. Michael Hicks. Michael, good to see you. <laughs> Is it weird calling me Dr. Hicks? Uh... It, it's not. It's not. It feels very natural to me. <laughs> So full disclosure, we are classmates. We're going to put that out there, Jeffrey. Or? That's right. That's okay. where I'm starting, actually. Okay. So this is, this is the way I'm starting today. So although you and I don't know each other all that well, we go way back. Yes. We were at Cattle Middle Magnet at the same time. Absolutely. And then after that, at Captain Shreve together. Yes. I once heard you use the term invisible backpack. Mm. Explain what that is, if you could, and tell me, if you could, what was in your invisible backpack in those years at Middle Magnet and or Shreve? Okay. <laughs> That's a very deep question just to start off. What about the, you know, how you doing, Michael? Uh, it's been years. Uh, let's talk. Um, goodness, Jeffrey. Uh, Excellent question. And I, before I get into that, can I give a little Please. background? I just want yeah. to say that, uh, Jeffrey, you're right. Um, we don't know each other that well, but we do go way back. And looking at you, I see the high school and middle school version of Jeffrey Goodman. I wonder if you see that version of myself. I do. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we said we're classmates, but I'm a year older than you. You are in the same class as my wife uh, who graduated, uh, who was actually at Middle Magnet and Captain Shreve with us, Demicia, and she put this thing together. I also want to say that this may be the first father and son interviewee team that you've ever had it is uh That's jeffrey true. had the pleasure of interviewing my son and my son had the pleasure of being interviewed by him a few months ago and i hope uh, your audience will go back and check that if they haven't seen it so i'm following in the footsteps of my son by sitting on the couch here with you uh today and i'm honored to do so um to get right into it jeffrey you know invisible invisible backpack is not uh, a Michael Hicks term. It's a term that exists in the in the educational research, and it can mean a couple of things. And I think the thing that uh, the, the reference that you saw, you may have seen a, a speech or an interview, and I referenced it. Uh, the invisible backpack is an analogy I use when I teach educators. I'm an education professor by by trade and discipline, and so I get a lot of time to work with folks. Uh, who are in the classroom as teachers. I started as a substitute teacher myself right here in Caddo Parish. But when we talk about invisible backpack, we talk about those youngsters um, uh, who bring with them so much baggage to school. Now, there are students like uh, Dr. Carl Goodman's son and Dr. Raymond Hicks's son, I'm speaking of you and I, who may not have as much in their invisible backpack. But Jeffrey, there are a lot of students, uh, particularly here in our parish, um, who bring so many things to the uh, uh, to the school environment that it really forces, uh, it demands that our teachers rise above uh, their certification or just their education, but actually become empathetic counselors and cheerleaders and uh, uh, parental job uh, uh, application filler outers and sometimes transportation providers. It just, it just, um, it, it demands so much of our educators. And so uh, things that kids bring in that invisible backpack is hurt, uh, sometimes pain, uh, so, and the pain can be associated with poverty a lot of times. Uh, there are a lot of students, um, uh, Jeffrey, believe it or not, and again, although folks like you and I may not have experienced that, you know, uh, I think about my father who was one of 15 children who grew up in, in absolute poverty, and I think about his experiences of sometimes having to open an icebox or a refrigerator on a Friday and having no food in it knowing that they wouldn't get another good meal until they got to school Monday. And so sometimes as educators, we forget that students bring those, um, um, those feelings, those emotions, some would even say in this day, those past traumas with them. And to the, ignore them, I believe, is to the detriment of the, uh, of the, of the teacher, right? Because they got into the helping profession to help. There's some who have snuck into the teaching profession who don't belong there, but I promise you the majority of teachers in this parish are there because they want to be in, and they understand the calling uh, that it requires. 
Um, I think that by ignoring it, it hurts not only uh, the teacher, but definitely the student in ways you can clearly see. But really, it hurts that school culture. Because by the time a student is third or fourth grade, if they've gotten a pattern of educators who are temporary and who don't care and who uh, uh, aren't willing to see uh, what's in that invisible backpack, um, it's just, um, I don't know, it's not just bad for the school, the teacher and the student, but really our, our community and our city. And I'm proud to say that there are principals in this pair, several of whom I'd like to consider friends and partners who are actively working to make sure that those uh, Cattle Pair School Children's Invisible Backpacks are seen by their faculty and staff and want to give a shout out to all those hardworking, not just principals, but uh, administrative staff members and certainly classroom teachers who go to work every day in this parish in a job that does not pay them what they truly deserve, uh, but they give their all every day. So that's what I meant uh, by using the analogy of invisible backpack. Now, as an education professor, I have a whole bunch of analogies. So if you want me to pull out a few more, I will. Uh, to get to your second part of that question, Jeffrey, that's interesting. What did I bring in my invisible backpack? Um, you know, I was blessed uh, first at Judson Elementary, then at Middle Magnet and at Shreve to have teachers who cared and concerned and got to know me. And so I guess... Uh, being a chubby kind of overweight kid, you know, I guess I had a lot of insecurities in my backpack. And a lot of times I would um, try to overcompensate that by, I guess, um, I don't know, humor, I guess, uh, and, and probably in a way a therapist would say I still do now. Um, I think I'm a very accomplished, I know I'm a very accomplished person, but I think I still have insecurities um, I still battle against uh, perfectionism and, um, you know, high expectations. It was interesting that, you know, at part of my, my childhood schooling, my father was on the school board. And so I was not the national merit finalist type student. I was a C student all through school mostly. And so, um, you know, I felt a lot of pressure. And so I think I just had a lot of insecurities about who I was as a young person, um, trying to navigate that that part of adolescence where I'm supposed to put on a cool pose and kind of be one way, but I still kind of felt I was more gregarious and more, more humorous. So, you know, a typical adolescent kid, I, I thank the Lord that I was not um, uh, given some of the burdens that a lot of our school kids uh, have to deal with. But, but nonetheless, there were teachers who understood that I had insecurities and who saw me and who helped bring out the very best in me. So that's what was in my invisible uh, backpack. Now, Dr. Carl Goodman's son, what was in your invisible backpack? I think the same as yours. Lots of insecurities. Mm. Yeah, isn't that interesting that we can share that as, uh, I don't know if 20 years ago we, we would have no. even been able to admit that. No. <laughs> and I came, I came, that was the first time I'd been in public school. I'd come oh, from wow. private schooling up until sixth grade. And okay. So it was... Um, insecurity but also just awe like awe of wow i've never seen this is my community wow. this looks so much different than everything i've seen up till now yeah you know that's the uh one of the beauties i say about captain shreve man is that a seven eleven oh six zip code you have some of the most affluent addresses in that zip code and some uh, some just regular middle class folk and even some uh, certainly a little bit of poverty mixed into that. And so at Shreve, you just got to have an education about the world and it all worked. You know what I mean? Whether no matter what community you were from, you know, we uh, we talked earlier off camera about Mike Johnson being our student government president. Now, you know, you really had to be able to know and, and to maneuver in a lot of different groups to, to be at Shreve. So even though I may not have come from that same background as you, I think I got an education uh, coming from Judson when I went to Middle Magnet. And, and certainly it continued on at, uh, at Captain Shreve. Love that. And I had never heard Invisible Backpack prior to prepping for today's discussion. So I really like that term. And thanks for Thanks for oh, hopping very, in there with very me. Very welcome. Very welcome. So this next question's super long. It's a way for me to kind of provide some background on you. So just okay. hang in there a little bit with me. Um, if I get anything wrong, just jump in. But okay. You hold a doctorate degree in education leadership from Louisiana Tech University. Correct. And your area of expertise is in leadership, justice, and identity. Yes. 
You have a wide range of experience in education, starting as a substitute teacher, which you mentioned in Caddo Parish, and later working as a community mental health specialist, school counselor, and faculty member at esteemed higher education institutions, including Southern University at Shreveport and Centenary College of Louisiana. A couple of people have said to me recently, this is my question, a couple of people have said to me recently how the magnet school system might not be the ideal school system for our community, particularly in how it potentially has a negative impact on some of our neighborhood schools. So my question for you is, in your opinion, is the magnet school system a bridge too far? And I heard Theron use that term, so I did steal that, even though I didn't really give him credit in the question. Is the magnet school system a bridge too far? And do you know of or see a better approach for our community? <laughs> uh, again, Jeffrey, this was not the lighthearted, <laughs> let's talk about days at Captain Treve interview. I thought it was going to be. Uh, but I certainly uh, uh, am excited that you even asked that question. You know, I spent a lot of my early career talking about the magnet system, even researching and, uh, and speaking boldly about um, about educational options, uh, particularly for black students. And so, you know, I'll share a little bit of my feelings and I hope that they're interested folk um, uh, who uh, I can continue this conversation with. If, if memory serves me right, it was several years ago, perhaps even decades ago, where Walter Lee, uh, who was then superintendent of DeSoto Parish Schools who, uh, and former Caddo Parish superintendent said that he never thought that the magnet system would still be going in Caddo. And so to say that, just to give you a little background on how magnets work, I think that at a time in the 80s, uh, uh, going into the 90s, when we were trying to attract industry like GE and other uh, 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 places to not only uh, uh, come, but to continue to build infrastructure here in our town, I think the magnet system was a way to address uh, segregation. Um, our schools were segregated, and despite there being a mandated crossover, which, uh, interesting enough, I'd like to share a little bit of that story about how the crossover affected our alma mater, Captain Treve, and those. And, and I want to definitely talk about those students who were plucked from uh, Eden Gardens Elementary, Eden Gardens Junior High, Eden Gardens Senior High, only to be told uh, in that 1969-70 school year that now you got to go to Captain Treve, a place where they were not welcome, they were not wanted, didn't have the same experiences as me because of the segregation that existed in our schools. Um, and, and so to get back to that, um, you know, to that question, I, I think that in order to initiate some sort of fairness that magnet schools were a, a great idea. It's not the magnet concept. I'm a product of magnet schools. Judson Fundamental Magnet, Caddo Middle Magnet, uh, and then Captain Shreve. But I mean, uh, it's how we do it. And so everywhere else in the country, for the most part, I would say upwards of 90% of the country that still has a magnet system, they do it on a lottery basis. And so, for instance, if there is a Caddo Parish Magnet High School, well, then you know what? Certain kids from every district, every neighborhood across the uh, school, uh, across the city, or parish rather, can come to this magnet school. But we aren't going to take every student, every top student out of every district. We're going to do a lottery. So we'll probably have some A students, some B students, uh, or whatever the requirements that we set up. But um, doing it in terms of a lottery, and it has its pros and cons, it's just different than the way we do it now. The effect of this magnet school uh, system that we've had in, uh, in effect for so long in Caddo is really uh, we've created a quasi-private school system. And so what happens is... Let me interrupt one second. So okay. it's lottery versus testing is maybe... Lottery the... versus testing. Okay. You know, I live on South Shreveport and I saw, some, I saw a sign that said magnet school testing. And for some reason, I don't remember seeing those signs when I was growing up. And I don't see I don't remember seeing them off Juella or off Greenwood. Maybe they existed, but I know that I became uh, um, I, I became a magnet school student really because my mother was a teacher. So she had an inside track on how the magnet process worked. And for so many folk without connections or uh, and I mean just connections with educators or people at their church and civic groups or they may see at work. Um, the magnet school system is, is, is hidden from a lot, of, a lot of people. And so what, is, what has happened is we've, we've, we've gotten this magnet school now entrenched in how we do schools in Caddo Parish. Uh, and what we see consistently is those top academic students from 
let's say Green Oaks or Woodlawn or Booker Washington districts, a lot of those top academic students are plucked out. And so whenever you have any group of students and you pluck out all the positive peers and you need leave more negative or average peers, well, then data tells us, uh, any analysis will tell us that you're going to see a skew towards uh, more negative outcomes. And so we've seen it for decades. We've just never said it. And so I spent a lot of my young career trying to talk about those educational opportunities. And honestly, if it's fair, particularly for kids in poverty and specifically for black kids, I don't care if you call it magnet, parochial, uh, Catholic, I mean, uh, religious, I don't care what you call it. As long as it, it, it levels the playing field. I am a, um, um, a subscriber to the philosophy or the psychology, if you will, of, of Alfred Adler. And Adler was a psychologist who believed that schools should be as democratic as possible. Meaning they should uh, they should do certain things like like we depend on our government to do certain things. Well, schools have an equal responsibility in in Adlerian view, and and so uh, I kind of take that same approach that we ought to use our public school systems uh, to to try to level the approach. There's some students who are going to have access to opportunities that others aren't, and I think that public schools are the ways to to equalize it. But uh, on the magnet system, I try not to be uh, as critical as I was when I was younger because I studied it more then. But just, uh, you know, the older I get, the more I see um, I see a lot of things changing. Uh, and so even though, yes, we do typically save our best resources, our most highly certified, our qualified teachers and, and all other type things for those magnet schools. Um, there are just a lot of good things going on in, in neighborhood schools around the parish uh, um, that I don't think we give a lot of uh, or enough light to. But that would be my, if I had a magic wand and could change our magnet system, I think our magnet schools are great and I wouldn't want to disrupt them at all. But I think the access, uh, who gets access to those schools um, uh, can be looked at a little bit differently. Love that. Now, as someone who hadn't studied that and who hadn't talked about charter schools, I mean, when I first talked about even charter schools as an employee of cattle parish schools, there were some older educators who thought I was a sellout to the public school system because, I, again, I don't care what you call it, charter, parochial, if it can give us opportunities to, to do education better, I agree. But as someone who doesn't come from that, you come from a more creative side of the world. Jeffrey, what are your thoughts on that explanation of magnet school? You being a product of magnet schools as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a wonderful experience for me. Um, uh, I've never even heard, I mean, I didn't even know a lottery. I don't, I'm not an educator. I don't know a lot about your area of expertise. I didn't even know they do it differently somewhere else. So uh, I, I'm not versed enough to know, like, we did a lottery system, what the pros and cons to that would be. But that's interesting for me to hear and certainly something that, I'd like to explore more if it's a way to um, to do more for some of our neighborhood schools who maybe are not getting the attention they deserve. Yeah, just but just on its face, on its surface, if you had a neighborhood and you said, "Listen, we this is a great neighborhood school. We we live together, we work together, we see each other, we help raise each other's kids," but we're going to have an avenue for the very best students who have the best test scores, the best academic, the strongest students. We're going to have an avenue for them to go to another school across town. Does that sound just on its face that it would have some ramifications? Yeah, it sounds problematic. Okay. I mean, the thing that you said that sticks with me the most is the idea that, yeah, if I take all the top students away from this place, this one school, then clearly it's going to have a negative impact on the ones that remain. Yeah. And it's not a, you know, I don't want to give an idea in this interview. That it's just an easy fix. Oh, here's the problem. Let's fix it. Um, you know, uh, my good friend and uh, my Morehouse brother who I went to college with, Lamar Gorey, is doing a great job with Cattle Schools. And I know it takes a whole lot uh, to run a district like that. So I don't want to give the impression that, hey, man, there's a problem and here's easily how you solve it. If uh, if it were done that easy, it would have would have been done. But I'm glad that we're just uh, we still have good folk in the community talking about it. Yeah, I think it's something to be looked at and something to continue to discuss and to see if we are always doing as well as we can. Agreed. So 
I'm going to stick with the hard balls. I don't know if I have any softballs Goodness. for you today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so you taught, I don't know if you're still teaching, you can, you can clarify this, but you taught a course at Centenary College entitled Doing Race. Yes. Uh, we've talked quite a bit on this podcast, uh, quite a bit on this podcast about how to do better creating and accepting a multi-ethnic Shreveport. So my question for you, which I think is the tagline of your first Doing Race course, is how do we do better as a community dealing with our differences differently and, in fact, better? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that was a tagline. There's some great research you're uh, coming up with. You know, uh, I taught at Centenary for four years, I think from... 2018 to 2022, and uh, I really got to thank the good people that uh, sent in there, starting with the president, uh, Chris Holloman, you know, for giving me an opportunity to boldly uh, uh, be who I am as an active, um, as someone who participates in what they call active research. I don't like to just sit in the library and 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 and, and write about and, and even think about uh, mostly, you know, these philosophies of these things that these that, that great researchers have come up with. I like to take that research and put it into the field. I've always done that my entire career. And 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 certainly um, Centenary, uh, again, beginning with the present, allowed me to do that while I was there. I started in 2018, and that same year, I proposed a course, and I think I believe I, believe I started teaching it in 2019. That course was doing race. And so what I wanted to do was see if I could get students from multiple backgrounds, ethnicities, uh, to come and talk about race in a very honest way on, on the campus of this uh, liberal arts um, uh, prestigious uh, college right here in Shreveport, you know, um, that has typically not had a lot of uh, access um, um, certainly by black male professors like myself, but black students. I joke with folks in my interview, uh, Jeff. I said, listen, the last time I was on Centenary's campus was when my mom and dad brought me to hear the Jackson 5 in the Gold Dome. I must have been like <laughs> in elementary school, but even being on their campus, uh, you know, uh, represented a, a side of Shreveport that really um, a lot of us don't get a chance to see. So I was uh, definitely excited with what happened. Look, in that class, not only did I open it up to the campus, but really the community. And so um, I said, I'm going to teach a class on race. Uh, this was at a time uh, pre-George Floyd and, and, and pre-Black uh, Lives Matter where, you know, race was kind of subjugated to only being discussed as, as, as a black thing. When you s still hear the word diversity, you may think that's a black people issue. Well, actually, no. All of us like diversity in in food, that's why Golden Corral is open, or the, the Diamond Jacks Buffet. <laughs> you know, diversity is not a race-specific term, but we took these terms, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, in, in 2018, 2019, and said, let's talk to young students about it. Uh, we looked at the amount of time that um, police um, actions, particularly on, on, on black suspects, spends in local news, not just in Shreveport, but across the country. You look, we looked at how people do race uh, economically in housing. We talked about the historic redlining, uh, and we brought in some local stuff. We talked about how people do race in education. And of course, that's how the crossover of Captain Shreve uh, uh, became something that I uh, have spent a lot of time learning about from those folk who lived it. It's not ancient history. It was something that happened in our lifetime. Uh, and so um, by opening that class up, not just to the community, uh, but the city, I think, um, number one, it, it, it's still shaping my, um, uh, my life. You know, from that course, I de uh, developed a training program for corporate America and even municipal and private or uh, in public organizations. And the name of that program is called the Fairness Advantage. And so I discovered, man, by teaching that course on race, that it really wasn't me teaching DEI to corporate officers and, and, and staff members at these uh, Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 companies. It was really me convincing them of the, the advantage of approaching everything in business with fairness in mind. And so because, you know, that, that sounds revolutionary, <laughs> you know, you have to just kind of break it down. But but actually doing race led to my current uh, teaching and training with my current company. Uh, and again, it's just about fairness. And so that's how I approach the class, Jeffrey. We 
presented some stuff about history and we presented some stuff about current situations here in Shreveport, in Louisiana, and abroad, uh, across the country rather, and we just asked students, is this fair? Is this fair? Okay, and so that is not a simple question to answer. You know, even as you and I talked about the magnet school situation, we can ask, you know, okay, is it fair this, if we look at certain data points right now in Caddo schools, is this fair? You know, uh, but the answer is not always black and white. It's very nuanced and it requires us to think and talk and learn from one another. And so what I think I really did the most by advancing and teaching that class was I think I brought folks together. I certainly brought um, disciplines together. I was able to connect with uh, um, uh, professors in, in, in other disciplines across that campus. They had students who would take the class. That was an entree for them to get to know me and I forged relationships that will last a long time. I got to get to know folk in the community. One of the, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a tripped out thing, Jeffrey, but this is Shreveport. I do not know how this happened. Two beautiful, and I mean, their minds are beautiful. Two beautiful women in Shreveport, Judy Williams and Roxanne Johnson, connected with me some sort of way. And I don't know if someone mentioned to them about the class, but here's what I do know. They came to one class. They came to one class, and check this out. They ended up becoming big sisters and moms to students in that class. They actually created a class library. They themselves went to Amazon and ordered a bunch of books on race and, 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 and critical thinking, and they offered those books to my students. And I just ran into a student in Kroger maybe a couple weeks ago who was part of one of those initial classes, and they don't remember what I said. They don't remember the ways I made them think. They remember those two ladies, those two beautiful ladies who gave of themselves. They gave their heart to that class. And so um, doing race will always have a special um, uh, part uh, of who I am now. As I said, it continues in the work I'm doing right now uh, with more corporate training and teaching. Uh, but it's just, um, you know, I'm honored that that class uh, was birthed right here in my hometown, beautiful Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah, I wish I could have taken it. You know, I've, I've been asked by a couple other uh, institutions, uh, none local, to revive that class and offer it because my students have gone on to do some great things and they've talked about that class. Uh, who knows? Maybe that's something I'll do right here in Shreveport as I, you know, uh, get into my older years. As my dad, who's 80, tells me he's he's trying to do some things. He's looking for things to leave his legacy. So I, I joke with him and say, well, I got about 30 more years until I get to that point. But maybe that's one of the things I can look at in terms of leaving, leaving a legacy. You know, I want people to remember that while I was here, I helped bring people together, whether it was across a campus, a beautiful campus like Centenary, or whether it was uh, across our city. Well, if you do it again, I'm in 100%. You're my first student, I promise you that. Okay. <laughs> well, we've, we've, we talked a little bit off camera about your dad, and he's come up a little bit in today's discussion. So let me just explain to people who he was. Um, you have a unique perspective as your father, Dr. Raymond Hicks, was the president of Grambling University in the 90s. My question for you is, uh, we're going to cover both sides of this. In your opinion, what's the same or worse today in terms of local race relations? Hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> can I share a little bit of the conversation we had off camera sure. uh, prior? Yeah, totally. You know, I'm not a Pollyannish or, or, or I don't have dreamy doe eyes when it comes to uh, us dealing together as uh, as blacks and whites here in this city. Uh, but I, as I mentioned to you, I'm a little more optimistic the older I've gotten. And so in that vein, Jeffrey, to be honest with you, one thing that disturbs me is that I think we have forgotten a lot of our racial history. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Um, uh, times are moving so fast, you know, sometimes we, we forget. Now, I'll give you a good example. Um, knowing that this is a, a product of the YMCA, you know, when uh, your classmate, Demisia, my wife, first told me that you contacted her and you wanted me to do the show, I started thinking about the Y, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, the YMCA is where I first had the opportunity to build up the confidence and the boldness to ask 
another eighth grader, a young lady. I can't remember her name. I can see her right now, a little short, curl, cute as she wanted to be, uh, to dance with me. And it was at the Carver Branch YMCA at a dance. And they used to have dances when I was little. That was a huge um, uh, source of our um, uh, uh, recreation, being from Queensboro. At first, I wasn't allowed to walk with the big kids from my neighborhood all the way to, to the Carver Y on, on Hearn. But a couple times I did sneak, uh, and those times changed my life. I'm still talking about that first time I asked this uh, young lady to dance with me. The name of the song was Slow Jams. I play another slow jam. And I, I, I wonder if my son is over there laughing. <laughs> I wonder if any of your viewers know who the artist, uh, and we going back to 80s R&B, who sang that song? That's a little uh, Easter egg I'll put in the podcast. <laughs> if you find me and tell me who sang the song Slow Jam, that was the name of the song, either Slow Jam or Play Another Slow Jam, I will... Uh, I will shake your hand and buy you a cup of coffee. But, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, that, that why and... You know, it was important and significant to folks in, in, in my generation, but that that particular branch of the YMCA, and I don't know how many people uh, know this, so I hope I'm using this as a teachable moment. That Y was the birth, birthplace for what became the Caddo Parish Teachers Federal Credit Union. And that credit union first opened up two teachers by teachers, B.D. Harrison and Albert Moody. Um, was an alternative to the then segregated white credit unions for teachers who would allow you to join as a black teacher but, but didn't have the same stance on providing loans. The Caddo Parish Teachers Federal Credit Union, uh, I like to say, is solely responsible for helping create the black middle class in our city. It helped teachers get loans to buy cars and to, to send kids to college and to, to have a little money when they needed to pay, you know, on the rent or the mortgage. That credit union, still in existence today, still thriving today, uh, well, their first office was at the Carver Branch YMCA. And one of the things that that branch did, I learned, was that they rented office space to folks in the community. So think about that. We know that the YMCA, like other organizations, was segregated in the South. Uh, maybe not so much in other parts of the country, but in, during the 50s or uh, up until the, to the 50s, 60s, uh, it was a segregated organization. And so that branch, you know, is so responsible for what I consider to be some of the people who are forming the lifeblood of Shreveport today. But right now, you wouldn't know that. You would pass by that branch and not know it. Now, we got a big, beautiful uh, fran uh, assembly, uh, a rather uh, building uh, right off uh, uh the parkway named for Mayor Fent. But, but a lot of people don't realize just how historic that George Washington Carver branch of the YMCA was to Black Shreveport. And so I guess, uh, again, man, I, you know, Jeffrey, you are, you are always a little, uh, you know, you were a year younger than me, man. So I always thought you were a little underclassman. I'm, I'm seeing that little boy in you as I'm talking to you now. You know what I'm saying? But um, uh, the older we get, I guess the more... Um, I don't know, sensitive or the more um, appreciative we become of our local history. So if there's any, I don't know if there's, a, there are probably a lot of things that some, some social scientists could talk about, you know, uh, may have uh, not improved. But, but one thing that I'd like to see is I'd like to see us just remember and recall, you know, um, some of the things that, that, that this city did to, um, um, to fight uh, some of the negative aspects of what living in the Jim Crow South you know, brought. So, and what's the best way to, what's the best way to commemorate that? Or what's the best way to start telling that story? You well, think? number, well, hopefully there'll be some people who will hear this podcast and say, BD Harrison, Albert Moody, who were those guys? Let's go back and look at the Carver YMCA. Is there some, are there other bits of history that we just don't know about? I mean, it was the first time I got an opportunity to, to, to swim, you know, the Carver Y had a, had a swimming pool back there. So, I mean, um, you know, maybe people will come to the wallet branch of the uh, of the Street Memorial Library, which is located right next door. They are another uh, uh, rich treasure trove of just history. So I think really just talking, Jeffrey, having the opportunity to talk about some of these things. Um, I think that's the very best way to commemorate and to make sure, you know, um, that we remember who we are as a community, because if we forget 
if we push those things aside, and you know, some youngster will grow up and think that the YMCA only exists off a parkway named after Mayor Fant, when that is not the case. And so I think just talking about some of those stories uh, uh, can be not only uh, teaching, but it can, um, you know, it, it, it can help take us to our future, hopefully better than the past. And so with that, my final formal question, I told you I'll come back at the end, but my final formal question for you is, what is better, you think, now in terms of race relations than it was when we were growing up here and when your dad was president at Grambling? Um, hmm. You know, it's uh, it's been inclement weather all week. Monday was MLK Day, so the kids were out of school. Tuesday, we had a storm. Today is Thursday. They've been out of school all day. And uh, we just got a text message saying Cattle will be out of school tomorrow. So I've been kind of with my son all week and just trying to spend a little time with him. And uh, I've been in a good mood, Jeffrey. Now you got me in this super serious uh, social scientist <laughs> to talk about race relations in our town. And, uh, you know, I don't want to trivialize it at all. But but I guess it's just the mood I'm in because of this week or, you know, uh, just my age. I don't know. But I just um, I feel like we can celebrate um, um, the progress that we're making, the progress that is being felt by some, not all. Uh, but I will say this to 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 go from a city where, you know, blacks could only go to the state fair in Shreveport on what they call dog day. That was in my parents generation. Uh, you know, my parents used to tell me about how uh, my mom used to tell me specifically about how they could not go to Rubenstein's or Selber Brothers or Pally Royal back in the day and try on clothes just because they were black. Uh, my son will never know that type of of, of racist action towards someone uh, or rather towards him because he is black. Uh, that is an improvement. Um, I suffered far less uh, racial, um, um, just negative negativities, um, uh, than, than the generation before me. So I want to just say that, yeah, we are improving. Uh, I, I think that, um, I don't know, Jeffrey, uh, and you know, since I really started doing a lot of training of, uh, doing corporate training and municipal employee training, I guess, you know, um, I, I'm out of that, 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 kind of academic um, pondering on, you know, the ills of our society and, you know, and, and what makes Shreveport um, not as good as it could be. I guess I've always been, a, and particularly as a Morehouse man, I was charged to putting an eye on those ills of society and really standing up to be one of those courageous souls to help uh, do something about it. And so I guess I'm more focused now on what kind of legacy I can leave uh, what can I impart in my students or in my trainees that will um, engage them to make this city even better? Michael uh, Coleman, my son, will have an opportunity uh, to do that. It won't look like it looked when I was coming up, you know what I mean? Uh, but I hope he still understands that fairness is an issue and that there is an advantage if all of us embrace fairness. Uh, and so I think... Um, I think in in those ways um, um, we've made progress and we will continue to make progress as a city. Well, Michael, I appreciate you being here. I told you when we started, I'll come back to you at the end. Is there anything, I know you brought some books. Um, do you want to talk about the books or is there anything we didn't discuss today? I, I know I didn't throw you a lot of softballs. I love seeing you. I love having you on likewise, here. Likewise. And I wouldn't ask you these questions if I didn't feel comfortable with you. Yeah. And I appreciate you even having that comfortability to, to, to ask me, you know, um, Jeff, really, I had to trust you to let me, uh, to let my son come sit on your couch and be interviewed. I mean, you've had some important folk in here, and I think my son is an important young man, but I mean, I wasn't here. I didn't hold his hand. I want him to, to experience life and, uh, and really represent himself. And that's actually why I have him here now. You know, I want him to, 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 to see this, this honest, engaged, uh, engaging conversation, uh, that you and I have. But, uh, but I want to thank you for for handling that interview very well and um, and certainly handling me very well. But there are some things I do want to come back to. And I'll start with the books that I, I have. And so one thing I do a lot is uh, I like to share what I'm reading. And that's just an old teacher thing in me. Um, a couple of books that I'm reading. <laughs> uh, the first one is Smart Brevity. 
Um, the creators of Axios and Politico uh, wrote this book, and it just struck my uh, attention in the, the bookstore. But it talks about the benefit of being brief in email conversations and presentations and even in conversations, something that I have not done, I know. But um, it just it's made me look uh, differently at um, uh, um, at my expressions, mostly written, but 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 really, how can I get my point across? Uh, with fewer words. And before you start, who who put you on to that book? Like, um, I'm I, always curious how people curate what they what they watch, what they listen to, what they read. Okay, that one just happened to catch my eye, uh, and I was just in the mood for a quick read, and it, you can read it in one setting. Uh, and I just kind of just saw it at Barnes and Noble, and and was drawn to it. It says the power of saying more with less, and so I said, hmm, let's. Sounds interesting. So that's how I got to that book. That book I have probably recommended more than any book in the past year or so. There's a, a recruiter for Shreveport Police Department, uh, Tiffany Oliver. She's a bibliophile as well. She's a lover of books. And so um, I only recommend books to her that I really uh, enjoy and have read. And that was the one that I recommended to Tiffany. So I'm recommending that to your viewing audience. Um, the next one is by Dr. Randall Pickett. This is a Wiley book. It's kind of an academic book, but it's data-driven DEI. Uh, and I like this book because it has me, um, it's validating some of the measures I use when I talk about fairness or try to introduce fairness to different companies. Uh, sometimes DEI can be so loaded a term, people want to you know, fight against it for certain reasons, but when I present my program as an advantage to being fair, it's hard to get people to say, no, heck no, we don't want to be fair in this organization, not here. So it's uh, it's kind of reassuring to read that. But it's, again, this little academic book, and it's just something that's come across. I think one of the... Um, uh, one of the equity leadership groups that I belong to, uh, someone recommended that book, but that's just kind of a strictly nerdy uh, academic book. And then finally, um, I really want to <laughs> recommend this book, probably because I'm proud of myself that I have even embarked reading a book this thick. Uh, I'm like my dad. If it's this thick, I need to listen to it on audiobooks. <laughs> uh, but but if you want to know the backstory, it's so funny, Jeffrey. I went to, I graduated from Morehouse College, and like a lot of people who uh, go to go to small private, particularly black colleges. They are familiar with the concept of having chapel. My daughter is a junior at Dillard University in New Orleans, where my wife graduated from, and she still has chapel. And so at Morehouse, every Thursday, every student would have to assemble in the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel to hear chapel, some speaker or some something, and and so. You know, I this was in the 90s, so technology was not what it was today. So once I got to know the upperclassmen who had the clipboard, I would say, hey, man, Mike Hicks, you got me? And they would sign Mike Hicks, and I would not go to chapel. But now having said that, they televised Morehouse College's chapel on YouTube. Uh, actually, I watched it today. Um, but it's funny. I watched chapel more and participated in it more now that I'm out of school than when I was a student. But about six, seven months ago, there was an author uh, who was uh, who had been invited to, to speak at chapel that day. And I was watching it at my desk on YouTube. And it happened to be the guy who wrote the um, he wrote the biography of um, let me see. These are some of his books. Uh, Jonathan Igg is his name, E-I-G, Igg. But he wrote uh, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders uh, Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution. He wrote Get Capone, The Secret Plot That Captured America's Most Wanted Gangster. He wrote uh, Opening Day, The Story of Jackie Robinson's First Season. And he wrote Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. And so uh, he is a bi biographer who is of the highest rank. And when he talked about this book at Chapel, just his talk about the research he did into it and how it is different from every other biography that has been done on King because he has access to different research. More CIA papers, more surveillance papers have come out. More documents that were sealed by the Federal Bureau of, of Investigation have come out, and he used that. He even used some interviews with King's associates and, and colleagues uh, that just weren't made available in the 80s and 90s. And so what he paints is a picture of the true man, not the person that we've kind of 
elevated to a race relation king who says, I have a dream that white people and black people can live together in harmony. But the true young fiery preacher whose main message was economic fairness. I mean, people forget why he was in Memphis the weekend he was shot. He was leading an economic rally. You know, he wanted fairness for sanitation workers and pay, fairness for uh, for city workers. And so um, what we get in this book is just an exciting, uh, um, I think, a fresh look. And being a Morehouse man, King graduated from Morehouse. Of course, I've read all his books. I, I've, I've you know, been taught by some of the, one of the professors who taught him taught me. And so King is definitely in my, my intellectual pedigree, but this book has just changed my thinking on who he was as a man, as a father, as a husband. We're talking about someone who was uh, followed 24 hours a day by the CIA who, you know, would tell his wife things about his his personal life and who would uh, use things to destroy his family. And yet he kept his sanity, he kept his stride. And of course, he didn't live a long life, but we know it was impactful. So uh, that book, I think, um, plus the fact that it's over 400 pages, man, it's just, I'm proud of myself for reading that book. I gotta give myself a little props on that. I'm getting old and it's uh, it's hard to re uh, reject the the audio books, but, uh, but that's what's on my desk. Um, I try to stay abreast of what's going on in Shreveport uh, with the local papers, but, um, I like, like you, I like learning what, what people are reading. So I got to put you on the spot, Jeff. You don't have your uh, books in there. But when I did watch this podcast, I saw some interesting books starting with uh, Sun Tzu right there. So I will ask you, what are you reading, Jeff? Uh, I would say I've, I've actually have more books right now than I ever have <laughs> that I'm in the middle of. That's a good thing. I'm reading, I'm actually reading um, a Robert Caro biography on Lyndon Johnson. He's written, oh, he's wow. kind of the definitive biographer on Lyndon Johnson. He's okay. written four close to thousand page books each on Lyndon Johnson. Wow. He's in his eighties. He's trying to write his fifth and final book on Lyndon Johnson before he passes away. So, uh, I'm in, I'm in the middle of the first book of that. Um, I do a collaboration with Norton Art Gallery once a quarter where it's a film club and we're showing Get Out on March 1st. So I'm reading two books right now to help me prep for my talk on Get Out. Okay. Um, Invite me to that talk, by okay, the way. Okay, I will. Absolutely. Um, and then I was at, um, my mom's going to kill me. I was at the uh, museum for southern jewish life in new orleans or something mm. like i don't know the exact name but mom do you hear this i know i know i'm in Send that email as soon as you watch I'm this in but trouble <laughs> but they had an exhibit which you may know about or not but um i didn't know anything about the rosenwald schools. oh wow so they have an exhibit yeah. on the second floor about the rosenwald schools and i was really moved by the exhibit and they had a book i bought two books about the exhibit and the relationship between booker t washington and Rosenwald. So I'm reading that as well. So I'm in the midst of, uh, I'm in the middle of far too much uh, right now, um, but really uh, stimulating stuff that I'm enjoying quite a bit. Wow, you'll have to share that LBJ uh, biography, but it's interesting and you'll notice, Jeff, I won't give this away, but when we think of Rosenwald schools here in, in this part of the, the, the country, the closest one we can really talk about is Wiley, but there's an interesting connection to Shreveport when it comes to the Rosenwald. So hopefully we'll get a chance to talk more about that uh, maybe in a, in a different setting. I don't know. This is a great studio. I think the professional team you have here seem to like me. Who knows? I could be the first repeat guest. And they're laughing right now. Our producer is <laughs> laughing behind camera. But uh, but I don't know, man. I, I, I really have enjoyed uh, 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 this time we spent together, Jeffrey. So I really want to thank you for inviting me. And I do look forward uh, to hearing your talk on Get Out. I used to, and maybe Christy is watching this at the Community Foundation, I used to do a quarterly or maybe a bi-quarter, twice a year book uh, talk where we would all, uh, the Community Foundation would put on their website what the book is, and then we'd read it, and then we'd come talk about it. I would lead those discussions. The last one we did at Norton, you made me think about that. So, uh, Christy, if you're listening to this, I want to revitalize the Community Foundation book club, hint, hint, so hopefully that makes its way uh, uh, to her inbox at some point. I would love that. Yeah, we we love Christy. She's been a guest, and then okay. she actually co-hosted uh, the episode that we published this morning. So we've had two co-hosts. She was our second wow. one. Um, so we're a big fan. 
Okay, well, Chrissy is definitely going to reach your inbox. And as the soon-to-be third co-host of this great podcast, <laughs> I want to thank you for blazing a trail of, of uh, journalistic and creative integrity that led you right here on the couch with uh, Jeffrey. So thank you, Chrissy. Michael, anything else? <laughs> uh, I think that's it. I think I've thanked you for interviewing my son. I think you did a great job. Thank you for this time. Uh, and, and thank you for what you do, man. I think you're making a difference through this podcast. You asked earlier, what could we do to improve things? And I think just by inviting a diverse set of folk um, uh, to this set, man, is, is really going a long way. I have certainly learned since I started watching. Uh, quite honestly, uh, when you had Dr. Graham from... Uh, uh, the Baird Family Foundation. I think that was one of the most um, just enlightening conversations ever. I know I'm not as poised and professional as she is, but I have tried in earnest to rise to uh, to her level. But but Jeffrey, uh, I want to encourage you uh, until you definitely keep doing what what you're doing. It's making a difference in our in our city. Thanks, Michael. Great to Very see welcome. you. It's been too long. Likewise.